It is uh, good to be back in First in Thessalonians. So if you turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians 4, we are going to continue our study of this letter from Paul, the first one that he wrote, dating all the way back to AD 50, on his second missionary journey, he had planted the church alongside of, of Silvanus or Silas and Timothy, been able to spend several months in that city before being forced to leave, and then a few weeks later he finds himself in Corinth, concerned for the church, sends Timothy back to, uh, to Thessalonica to get an update, and Timothy comes back, and within months of that church coming into existence, Paul sits down to write this letter. We are going to be looking this morning at a new paragraph in our study, and it is found in chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, so you can turn there already. But as you do, I want to remind you of the context of this section and the larger context within this letter, where we're at right now. And if you remember from our study, which we began in January, we are now in really the, the heart of the letter as Paul addresses some very significant issues. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1, and it, it will extend to chapter 5, verse 22. You remember that when Timothy came back from Thessalonica, he brought back a report to Paul about the state of the church. So you can even see in Uh, Chapter 3, verse 6, Paul makes reference that Timothy has come back to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. And then, a few verses later, we read in verse 10 of chapter 3 that Paul's desire, nonetheless, despite this really good report, he says this in verse 10 of chapter 3, we night and day keep praying most earnestly the face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So there, is, there were still some, some lack in the Thessalonian congregation. This was a, a wonderful church. Paul uses the term brothers more frequently in this letter than any of his other letters. He's very endeared to this church. Nonetheless, he recognizes that there is still some lack, some immaturity. And in fact, he moves then immediately into verses 11, 12, and 13, where he prays for them specifically, as we will see in just a moment, specifically in the areas of their lack, where they still needed admonishment and exhortation. Now, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, he he addresses these issues in greater detail. We can look at four major sections within chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the first of these sections, chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 12. We'll finish that this morning. There, in this section, Paul gives commands regarding God-pleasing conduct. Then he's going to move, as we will get to later this month, he's going to move into verse 13 and an entire section on the dead in Christ. He's going to give to them some instruction and encouragement related to those who had already passed away. Then in chapter 5, in the first 11 verses, he'll deal with some reminders regarding the day of the Lord, and then he will close this major section with exhortations regarding church relations. Now, in this first section that we've been looking at over the past weeks, you can further divide that into three separate 
uh, sections, subsections. So the first verses one to two of four really serve as that introduction to the section. It's the transition as Paul now deals with the things that were lacking and reminds them of the exhortations that he had given with the authority of Jesus when he had been present with them. Then in verses 3 to 8, Paul moves on to deal with one of the most pressing issues, and that was uh, the issue related to sexual purity and sexual ethics and understanding uh, the, the, the roles, limitations, responsibilities, specifically of men within the congregation. And now, as the last subsection here, Paul is going to deal with another major issue, as we're going to see in, in a moment. It's going to deal with love, verses 9 to 12. So in our Bibles, we'll be focused on this, and we're going to in the time that we have, pull out as many details as we can to understand the situation, to understand Paul's response to it, and then to take and allow it to have the authority over our lives by binding our consciences to the principles that are revealed therein. So how are we to understand verses 9 to 12 from the satellite view, big perspective? Well, as I said, Paul continues here addressing the issue of the lack in the faith of the Thessalonians. And this section now, in particular, deals with the issue of love of the brethren. Love of the brethren. We're going to define that and look at it in much greater detail, but he's dealing with it as it relates to God-pleasing conduct. How does love for the brethren relate to conduct that is pleasing to God? As I said, Paul has specifically prayed about these issues in his model prayer in verses 11 to 13, and now he's going to address it. And to get that prayer, by the way, verses 11 to 13 of chapter 3, Paul is, like I said, he's moving now to deal with these issues of, of lack in the faith of the Thessalonians, and he prays for them. This is not just empty rhetoric. This is something that was on Paul's heart, and it filled his praying He says this, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we do also for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, packed into that prayer are all the issues that Paul is unfolding now in chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, verse 22. They're all in there in one way or another. But love takes preeminence. He prays for them that they would increase and abound in love. Now, in light of that, let's look at our text. Chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Now, as to the love of the brethren. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are all in, in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life And attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave proud outsiders 
and not be in any need. Now, this whole paragraph deals with the concept of brotherly love. And remember, using the language of Paul's prayer back in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, he prayed that their love would increase and abound. Now, in this paragraph, he is addressing that issue and is giving instructions as to how this love can increase and abound. And how are we going to see that in the text? I'm going to give you three three truths to understand as, as Paul develops this concept, three truths that are foundational and, and crucial in the promotion and protection of brotherly love, in the application and the implementation and the expansion of brotherly love. First, it's this. We're going to see this in verse 9 and the first half of verse 10. Brotherly love is an inevitable consequence of the Christian life. I'm going to start with that one. It is an inevitable consequence of the Christian life. Secondly, in the second half of verse 10 and in verse 11, we're going to see that even though it is a necessary consequence, an inevitable consequence of the Christian life, nonetheless, brotherly love requires incessant improvement in the Christian life. It requires from us constant cultivation. Just because it has already been implanted within us, just because it is inevitably produced by us because of the work of regeneration as we're going to... Nonetheless, it requires incessant improvement. And then finally, we're going to see this at the end of this paragraph in verse 12. Brotherly love produces indispensable advantages for the Christian life. Brotherly love produces indispensable advantages for the Christian life, verse 12. Let's look at the first of these. Brotherly love is an inevitable consequence of the Christian life. Now he begins verse 9 with these words. He says this, Now, as to the love of the brethren, and that very first set of words, now, as to, is actually quite a common, common recurrence within Paul's writings. He uses that to, to uh, refer to uh, a, a question that has been posed to him. So, for example, if you would look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, and actually throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we won't turn there, but Paul is going to use that phrase multiple times. Now as to, or now concerning. It, it indicates that Paul here is answering a question. He's answering an inquiry that was passed on to him, undoubtedly by Timothy. Timothy has come back. He's come back with this great report. Nonetheless, there are questions. And one of the questions dealt with brotherly love. Paul, you can, uh, you can picture yourself in... in uh, Paul's shoes for a moment. Timothy comes back and, 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 and Timothy says, let me tell you what questions they had for you. And, and Paul, here's one of them. Paul, how do we promote and protect brotherly love? How does this look in the long term with all these practical issues in, in church life? And Paul says, well, I'm going to answer that now in the letter. Now as to 
the love of the brethren. In fact, what's interesting to note, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. 5, verse 1, we're going to see the same construction used to begin that section on the day of the Lord. Paul there, too, writes this. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. He's going to introduce there a section on the day of the Lord, and he's going to, uh, he's going to again respond to a question that the Thessalonians had about the day of the Lord. So Paul here is responding to a question that had been posed by the Thessalonian congregation. And as we said, that question dealt with this topic, the lutheran, the love of the brethren. Now, in the Greek, it's just one word, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, that's a Greek word. It is far antecedent to the name of the city. Philadelphia, philia, referring to love, and adelphos, brother. And it's a Greek word put together to refer to brotherly love, what we will translate here as the love of the brethren. Now, it's important to note this, that this is a special term. It does not occur very frequently in the scriptures. In fact, it only occurs five times in the scriptures, once as an adjective, five times as a noun. It's not the common term for terms for love, not the kind of inclusive love that had to be shown to all. We are commanded in Scripture to to love all men. But the term that's going to be used there is different from this term. This is not an inclusive kind of love. Rather, the choice of this term, Philadelphia, indicated a very kind of exceptional love, a very kind of exclusive love, particularly the kind of love that was, that, that was unique to a family. It was unique to a family. You see, the term was well known within Greco-Roman culture. And even among the, the Jews who spoke Greek, they would use this term, but they would limit this term to refer to the love specifically between siblings. Between, If you know anything about Greco-Roman culture, there was this elevation of sibling love, Philadelphia, to this, to this high level, very kind of unique love, and it represented the kind of solidarity they idealized between brothers and brothers, brothers and sisters, sisters and sisters. There was a kind of love that the Greeks recognized that was very exceptional within the family unit. It was not an inclusive love. It was not the kind of love that brothers would have for friends. It was to be the kind of, of love that was to be between brothers and sisters, siblings within the same family. That's special Mutual love. And the the Greeks and the Romans prized this so highly and yet would never achieve this, really see this kind of pure Philadelphia love within their pagan system. But what is ironic here is that Paul says, now this is a reality of the church. 
what could not be achieved even with great effort within families is a reality of the church. And and this is phenomenal to think of. Paul employs this term here to refer to the very close kinship, the solidarity between members of the church. That would have been a very unusual way to take this term. But Paul does. He rests it out of of Greco-Roman culture, and he uses it here in the pure sense to refer to the relationship between the church. This is what describes brothers and sisters in the church. They are spiritual siblings. And what's fascinating to note here as well is that this sibling love, this kinship, exists above the common lines of demarcation within relationships. Even if we would look at Acts chapter 17, where Luke records the planting of the church in Thessalonica, we would read even there that there were different categories of people. And and in those days, as much as in our days, those categories would be distinguished, Jews and Gentiles being one of the main ones. But what you see in the, the composition of that first church there in Thessalonica was that it brought Jews and Greeks Jews and Gentiles together. It also brought women together in this household of faith. And it would have included individuals from various social, culture, and economic backgrounds. Thessalonica was a, a chief city in Macedonia. It was, a, it was the key to the entire Macedonian state because it had the best port in, northern Aegean, in the northern Aegean Sea massively important, and that brought in all kinds of people from various ethnic and, and, and social backgrounds. And it's out of that, that cosmopolitan context, a church is formed. And Paul is able to say, we're siblings. Paul himself is going to call them brothers many times. He's going to use family terminology. He's going to refer to himself as a mother. He's going to refer to himself as a father. He's going to use the term infant and orphan. And like I said, brothers is repeated more often times within this short letter compared to the frequency in other letters. Paul is emphasizing the spiritual union. And by the way, in Bible translations, it is a travesty when translations will translate that term as friends. By translating it as love for friends, or when Paul addresses them as friends, what it directly undermines is that concept of a family that is so integral to our understanding of the community of the church. We are brothers and sisters. We're not just friends. And for those of you who are in Christ, you understand this because we realize that you are closer to people here who have vastly different backgrounds, come from different countries around the world. You are vastly closer to them. You're closer to them who have different skin, speak different mother tongues, so much closer to them who share your faith in Christ than even a parent who is outside of Christ. You felt that before, right? You have relatives, you have family members, siblings who do not know Christ. And it's a totally different thing to go and spend time with them 
at lunch on a Sunday afternoon and to have some believers together. We noticed this so clearly when we moved to Russia. And it was, it was uncanny. And, and the missionaries here will be able to understand this as, and explain this as well. And those who've moved in from other countries here, you can explain this. that it's, You don't really even know very much about each other's background. But you can sit together and share the most personal things. You can trust each other. You'll give them the keys to your car. You, you, they're family. And that's what the faith does. And that was what is so important in understanding here. And that's why Paul says, to the love of the brethren. Now he says this interesting statement immediately after that. He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And you might scratch your head and say, well, he's going to just go and do just that. He's writing about brotherly love. What, what is he referring to here? And actually, this is an interesting rhetorical device for all of those who uh, study literature. Uh, there's a, a rhetorical device called, called a paralipsis. A paralipsis. It's when a writer will introduce a topic downplaying the need for correction or the need for instruction. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He's going to do the same thing actually in chapter 5, verse 1. If you look there, he does the same thing there. You know what? Now as to the times and the epochs, he's referring to the day of the Lord, you don't have, anyone, you don't have any need for anyone to write to you. But why does Paul do this? Well, he's, to begin with commendation, he wants to affirm that which is already thriving within the Thessalonians. And by the way, you can just see Paul's shepherding heart here. He's not just one of those rough, brutish kind of guys who says, I'm just going to tell you as it is. I'm just going to get right to the point, just look right in your eyes and tell you what is lacking. No, instead what you find with Paul here is that shepherd's heart, and it's an example to all of us before he even gets to the point of saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to supply something here that's lacking in your understanding of Philadelphia, but before I do, I want to commend you. I want to commend you, and, and he gives commendation, affirmation of their love in two areas. And that's, that's what we see here in these verses, verses 9 and the first half of verse 10, in this necessary consequence. Brother, the love is a necessary consequence of, of the Christian life. It just automatically happens, and Paul wants to, to show us how this indeed had happened in the Thessalonians' lives. And the two ways he affirms this, are as follows. First of all, notice the second half of verse 9. He says this, For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He's explaining why he has no need to write. You yourselves are taught by God. You have God as your teacher. You, you actually don't even need me for this foundational information. God is your teacher at the most basic level as it pertains to to brotherly love. Now what is interesting here in this statement is this, this phrase, taught by God. God. Literally, Paul takes didaktos, the Greek word, we, we get didactic from it, and the word theos, for God, the Greek word for God, and he puts them together into one word, it never occurs elsewhere in the New Testament. 
There's no history of that term ever outside of the Bible in religious contexts prior to the time of Paul. And even in the years after Paul, you just don't find this term. It is an extremely unique term, but we understand it because we understand the term theos, God, and didaktos, taught. Paul puts them together and essentially says, for you are God taught. You are God taught. This issue of Philadelphia, love for those of like precious faith is something that comes automatically through the divine working of God himself. You are God taught. Now what is interesting also about this statement, you are God taught, is that it is very close to another unusual and very closely related term in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you go back to Isaiah 54, verse 13, you find this other unusual word. In the Greek translation that Paul was often using, you can tell in his quotations of the Old Testament, he quotes from the the Septuagint, and you find this similar, very closely related term in Isaiah 54, verse 13, where Isaiah prophesies, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Now, we don't have time to go back to that context of Isaiah 54, but in Isaiah 54, it's one of the great chapters, the entire nation of Israel. It's connected to the promise of the new covenant, the covenant that that God had had made unilaterally with the nation of Israel when he said, I'm going to renew them, I'm going to revive them. They will come to life. And they will love me and keep my commandments from within. The new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31 to 33. And interestingly enough, last time when we looked at the very end of the previous paragraph in verse 8, we saw that very unique language where Paul says that God has given his spirit, the Holy Spirit, into you, which reflects new covenant promises that were given to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 6 and 14 in particular. And so what's Paul doing here? Again, this is very amazing. He's not just saying that the new covenant has been transferred to a different recipient. No, with the nation of Israel. Just look at Romans 9 and 10. He's going to speak of that. In, in those precious chapters, God is not done with the nation of Israel The promises that God made with the people of Israel are unilateral. They will not be broken. God is faithful and unchanging, and so are his promises. But what Paul does is say, Thessalonian church made up of Jew and Gentile, made up of different ethnicities, different levels of social status and economic status and ethnicities, he's saying to them, you get a foretaste of this. You get a foretaste in this, in that what is going to be taught to you is not just going to be external. It's not going to come from only the written law. Yes, the written law is the manifestation of God's character, but what is going to happen is that God will teach you from within. God himself will be your teacher, and he will teach you inside of you. Paul takes that and says, that is what has happened with you. And that is why this Philadelphia is so inevitable. Anyone who has been regenerated, anyone who has been 
supernaturally converted, miraculously converted, now has God as his or her teacher. That person now gets to foretaste the blessings that will be poured upon all of Israel as a nation. That person is able to foretaste those blessings already. And what is it that was taught? What is it that was taught by God to these Thessalonian converts? What was taught to them was that they love one another. They love one another. This was integral to God's revelation of His will throughout both Old and New Testaments. You could go to Leviticus 19.18 and the command to love your neighbor. Or you could go to the New Testament, to Romans 13, verse 8 and 9, where Paul says this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was a primary pillar of God's revelation of His will for His people. In the Old Testament, it was written written in the law. It was part of God's command, His expectation, His will for His people. But as we read in the Old Testament, just left on the page, just left in letters, that itself wasn't enough to transform the hardened hearts of those Israelites. It wasn't enough to make them love because of the hardness of their hearts. What was needed was a kind of regeneration, a new heart, a a, a heart that that would embrace this and apply this, that would bind itself to these words and And have these words become an internal reality. And Paul says, well, that has already happened to you, Thessalonians. What has no parallel in the experience of any other person outside of regeneration, what is impossible to attain among unbelievers, what was impossible for the Israelites of the Old Testament in the hardness of their heart, what is impossible even in our day and age with with the most ethical efforts made by false religions today, what is impossible there is now not only possible, but it's natural. It's natural for that regenerated person. This love of the brethren, this love for one another, is not traced to your upbringing, although that can certainly be an instrument in communicating the gospel. It cannot be traced to a heritage. It cannot be traced to some kind of, some kind of conditioning that you received as a child. It's no natural human effort. It's not intuitive. You have to understand that this love for the brethren, this Philadelphia, is totally supernatural and miraculous. And no matter how hard, if you're outside of Christ, no matter how hard you might try to attain this, as some great moral virtue, let me just say this, it is impossible. You never will. And whatever version you have of love for the brethren or love for others outside of Christ is corrupt. 
But inside of Christ, it's natural. Inside of Christ, it's possible. Inside of Christ, it's not only possible, but it is inevitable. Paul says it is supernaturally imparted. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But not only that, it had then been manifested only to, openly to others. Paul not only affirms the fact that they had this exalted status as those who had been regenerated by God, but there is this natural manifestation that then, that, that then made itself openly visible to others, and we see that in the first half of verse 10. Paul says this in chapter 4, beginning of verse, verse 10, for, you, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. What was God taught was made now manifest in their everyday life. And Paul states it very plainly here. You practice it. The idea there is of continuous nature. It is not just an occasional occurrence. This is something that marked their lives. Because they had been God-taught, there is an efficaciousness with it that made love inevitable. How did they manifest it? We don't know exactly, but Paul does refer to it elsewhere. Remember in chapter 1, verse 3, as Paul recounts their virtues, he said that in his prayers he constantly remembered their works of faith, and their labor of love. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, we read that earlier, Timothy's report, that Timothy gave this great glowing report of their faith and their love. Paul here mentions it again and, and says, this is what you are indeed showing, you're displaying this. And there could have been various ways, we don't know exactly, Perhaps it was because they were showing hospitality to other believers who would come to Thessalonica for business. Remember, I said Thessalonica was the center, and so anyone who had some kind of business would have to go to Thessalonica to, to conduct some of their business. It was a port city. Perhaps the believers were hospi- hospitable to them. Perhaps it was the provision of, of material resources. We will read and have read already that this church was under persecution, they faced the hostility from the world. And perhaps these believers were, were giving one another material help in the midst of that. Perhaps this church had been providing material like the Philippian church did for the furtherance of the gospel and helping to supply for Paul's needs. We don't know exactly, but all we do know is that Paul says, this one who knows what brotherly love looks like, Paul said, you're doing this. It's manifest. You're doing it toward all the brethren. There's no distinctions here. You're showing to all who are in Christ this brotherly love. That is what happens in true believers. That is just a fact. In true believers, brotherly love is always present. It is. It's one of the greatest demonstrations. Jesus himself talked about that in John. The world will know you by your love. It is inevitable. I like what Thomas Watson said. He said this, The believer's heart is the garden where Christ plants the sweet flower of his love. That automatically raises the question, is brotherly love this special kind of solidarity with others of like precious faith in Jesus Christ, is that evident in your life? Is it present as a natural consequence, not just 
you're, you're trying to manufacture it, and some days, you know, there's a little tiny hint of it, but not really. No, but does it really manifest itself? If it does, there you have one of the greatest evidences of genuine conversion. But if you look at your life and you examine it and you say, I don't see it. Not only do I not see it, but I don't want it. I don't care about this. That will be one of the greatest demonstrations of a lack of true conversion. A believer's heart, the true believer's heart, is the garden where Christ plants his flower, his sweet flower of love. But not only does Paul instruct us about brotherly love and that, with that truth, he moves on now to what was needed in terms of a lack in provision. Now we get to this second, this second emphasis in the text, this second truth about brotherly love, Philadelphia. And it is this, brotherly love requires incessant improvement. Brotherly love requires incessant improvement in the Christian life. Notice he begins in verse 10, and in the middle of verse 10, and he says this, but, 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 that contrasting conjunction emphasizes to us that as natural a consequence as it was, nonetheless, it did not negate the need for development, for improvement. We can't sit back. We can't say, well, I've experienced it and I've expressed it. I know it's a part of my life, so I'm all good. I'm good to go. I'm ready for heaven, and, and my, my ticket is punched, and I'm, I'm ready. Not at all. Paul says, now, wait a minute, Thessalonians. And he uses this strong language. He says, but we urge you. This is not just a proposition. It's, it's not just an invitation. It's not a suggestion. It is a very strong verb that aims directly at the will. Paul loves this verb whenever he is exhorting something of very serious importance. He will bring this verb in, I exhort you, I urge you. This is a matter of great significance. And as we look at these words now, in middle of verse 10 to the end of verse 11, we see that Paul exhorts them in four ways. He gives them four ways in which their love needed to be promoted and protected. How to, how to cultivate and develop, as well as how to protect it. Let's look at these four. First of all, Paul says, the promotion of your love must happen by loving increasingly. By loving increasingly. Notice the second part of verse 10, right at the end. He says this, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul here begins this list of four with a chief exhortation related to love's promotion. And the verb to excel here has the idea of abundance in order to have more than the bare necessity. Paul is no proponent of mediocrity. He is, he's no proponent of just getting by. That is not acceptable to the Apostle Paul. You might have the manifestation of Philadelphia love, but he says you need to have it in abundance. You need to have it beyond the bare necessity. You cannot be content to leave it where it is. And of course, the question is, what are you to excel in? And the context is very clearly, you are to excel in Philadelphia. You are to be constantly, continually focused 
incessantly focused on improving your understanding of brotherly love and your expression of brotherly love. That is the call that Paul gave to the Thessalonians and he gives it to us. In fact, you could put it this way, and I've said this before already, that when it comes to understanding the doctrine of Christian growth, understanding how we grow as believers, how does our spiritual life grow? You could summarize it with two words. These words are very, very important, and they're found right here in this context. The words love and increase. If you think, how can I grow in Christ? How is my spiritual life to thrive? You can boil it down to these two words. Now, of course, these two words need to be defined and and applied properly, but they, they boil down to these two words. True Christian love, love, and increase. That is what marks true sanctification. You know you're growing when Philadelphia is increasing. You know you're stagnating when you're ambivalent. You don't care. You just kind of, I got by, that's good enough. I don't need to do anymore. I'm set for the next month. I did some great work. And that's all, you know, I'm going to live off that for a while now. And now I can be just by myself and do my own thing and take care of my own life. Stagnation. Progressive sanctification, growth in the Christian life is marked by love and increase. So Paul says to them, you must love increasingly. You must love increasingly. But secondly, he also says that love is going to be expanded and developed by living quietly. By living quietly. Notice the first part of verse 11. He continues his list and he says this, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, we urge you, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, Paul moves here now from the, the promotion place. No, he now introduces some important protections that the Thessalonians needed to hear. If brotherly love is going to thrive, we also need to talk about protections. And he introduces this in the beginning of verse 11, and he, and he states this, make it your ambition. Have an intense desire. That word there for Ambition, having an intense desire, was a word that was commonly used in that day, read it in extra-biblical usage, to refer to political aspirations. There's irony here, because the term was used to to describe those who wanted to move up the chain of the the social classes and to have more and more influence and, and, and leadership in society. They were those who had this ambition, this intense desire Paul now takes that verb, but notice how he defines its goal. He doesn't say, make it your ambition to become louder, to become more important, to become more known in the community, to have greater influence. Notice how he describes the ambition. He says, make it your ambition, as you protect brotherly love, to lead a quiet life. Not to be rancorous, chaotic, loud, not to be the center of attention, not to attract all kinds of people's eyes to yourself, but you know what? How you're going to promote and protect brotherly love is by leading a quiet life. Not to increase in 
popularity, not to move up the ladder, not to gain greater social influence, political influence in your circles, but to live a life of tranquility, peace. Peace among those in the household of faith. This is key for understanding brotherly love. If you have some time, just go to Galatians chapter 5 and compare the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. What you find with the deeds of the flesh are things like this. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. That is an unquiet life. And that is deadly to brotherly love. But when you look at the fruits of the Spirit, you have this remarkable tranquility. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That is a quiet life. That is the manifestation of God-taught brotherly love. It's not a kind of love that seeks attention and needs to be in greater control in order to love. And listen, that is a common temptation that we face. It's not unusual to have the temptation that says, okay, if I'm going to love you, you've got to give me, you know, it's kind of quid pro quo. You've got to give me power. You've got to give me control. You've got to let me speak. If I'm going to love you, Paul says, that is not brotherly love. That is not how you promote it. That is not how you protect it. He gives a third one here. He says, by focusing inwardly. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't this self-centeredness? And it's not. Let's look at Paul's language. Again, it's in the middle part of verse 11. He says, we urge you to attend to your own business. Paul gives another exhortation here related to love's protection. And this idea of attending to your own business literally means accomplish your own things. Mind your own business. That's important for a good family. And for those of you who have kids... You know, especially the young ones. You've probably said this a gazillion times. You know, your kids are around the table. They're supposed to be working on homework or doing chores or whatever. And what is it, what is it about kids? When you give them chores to do, they're always telling the other one about how to do it better. You know, it's like they just can't. No, they, I've got to, you know, they've got to be that inspector of someone else. And, and you just have to say, mind your own business. You're creating strife. Focus on your task, on your duties, on your responsibilities. And that's exactly what Paul tells the church, the members in the church, that they are to mind their own business. Stop being a busybody and get busy with your own stuff. And understand this, this can be a a real detriment and undermining to brotherly love is when you have a bunch of busybodies who under the label of love are interfering with everyone else's business. And they'll say, well, I'm loving you. I've got to tell you, you've got to do that better. And you've got to do that better. And they they just say, well, that's my calling in life. And they have no time to actually do anything productive. But they, you know, they're the inspector, the fruit inspector, all the time. But Paul says, we urge you. Accomplish your own things. Philadelphia cannot increase in a context of self-promotion and tactlessness. It cannot. It's as if Paul is saying, keep calm and mind your own business. You know, if the, the family is to, is, is to function well and to minister to the right needs, you have to make sure that you are not the center of attention. You are not promoting yourself in the expression of love. And you're not doing this, uh, this love in a tactless way. And there's a fourth one. 
The fourth one, not only is love incessantly improved by loving increasingly, by living quietly, by focusing inwardly, but also by working diligently. Real practical. This is Paul's most most influent or most uh, practical and and, and concrete uh, command that he gives for the the promotion of brotherly love. He says, "We urge you to work with your hands, just as we commanded you." Now, we're going to come back to this next week, and I'm going to do a survey of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians as it relates to work, because Paul raises the issue here, and in our day, there is a lot of very unbiblical thinking about work, and we're going to see what Paul has to say about it. But let me just summarize it here. Paul says, you must work with your hands. Paul makes a direct connection between laboring and loving. Laboring and loving. And in that day and age, we know this from the, 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 the uh, extra-biblical sources, that in that area of Macedonia and actually throughout the Greco-Roman Empire, but especially in Greece, the elites disdained manual labor, and the lower classes were prone to beg and want to receive special handouts and not take opportunities to work. Kind of sounds like our day. Uncanny... Resemblance. There's nothing new under the sun, really. Those same problems existed back then, and Paul recognized this as a threat within the church to brotherly love. If you have lazy men, that will create strife. It's common. You got strife in in different groups, and just ask are the men hard at work? Often. Not always, but often you'll find out no. There are people who are not working when they should be working, and as a result, undermining the whole love, the family context of the church. Laziness in fulfilling one's responsibilities will lead to the exploitation of brotherly love. Now, understand this. Paul is is not here denying the need for charity for those who are legitimately not working due to health reasons. They've, They've lost their jobs. They're searching. They want to work, and they can't. Paul's not dealing with that. He's dealing with the problem of laziness. And wherever you have love that's flourishing, understand this, there will always be, because of human nature, you will always have the threat of exploitation. There will be those who will seek to exploit that sacrificial love. And if that is allowed to happen, it will diminish the church's love. Paul is very clear on this. Laziness, men who do not do what they should be doing, they will become burdens on the church, and true brotherly love, how it is really to be expressed, will be seriously undermined. At the same time, honest labor, taking care of one's needs, will contribute to the promotion of brotherly love, and it will allow the church to deal with the issues that really need charity. And by the way, Paul adds in this phrase to indicate this is not something new. In the few months that Paul had with the Thessalonian converts, he addressed this very issue. He throws in this phrase, just as we commanded you. This is part of Paul's instruction to brand new believers. Men, don't be lazy. Don't be a drain. Provide for yourselves and have left over to provide for those 
who are really in need. And you do that, and that church will become a loving place. Now, there is a third and final, and we'll look at this really quickly. Verse 12, brotherly love produces indispensable advantages for the Christian life. Brotherly love produces indispensable advantages for the Christian life. Notice verse 12, he says this, so that... Here's his purpose statement to these previous four exhortations that talk about this incessant improvement of brotherly love. You do this so that, for this purpose, that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. This is the purpose for, for these commands. And in particular, real quick, Paul highlights two, two advantages, two indispensable advantages that I know all of us would, would like to attain. And Paul says, well, here is what you can when you follow these commands. Number one, you, you protect the purity of your evangelical witness so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. To behave means to walk. It means a lifestyle. To behave properly, to walk properly, refers to walking decorously, in good form, decently, and to walk that way before outsiders. The word outsiders there refers to those who are not part of the church. The very beginning, Paul writes to them, and he calls them the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the outsiders were those who were not part of that church. In fact, the outsiders were those very countrymen that we read of in chapter 2, verse 14, who are persecuting the church. Those were the outsiders. And Paul says, you know what? When you do this, when you follow these descriptions of brotherly love and you promote and improve it in these ways, you will behave properly in relationship to the culture. Secondly, it'll promote your own personal well-being. It will promote your own personal well-being. There is a, there is a personal advantage to following these things, to, to increasing in, in, in your sacrificial love for one another is advantage, advantageous for yourself. This is the irony of true love. There is always mutual benefit in some way. And that's what Paul points to here at the end. He says this, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You'll literally not be in need of no one. And again, he's not saying that we are to be isolated islands, independent from the church. But when it comes to supplying for your own needs, when you take care of the responsibility God has given you to be a worker, to supply for those needs in your family, you won't be dependent upon someone else and take it away from them and their family. And that will be a protection for brotherly love and that will be a benefit to you. By keeping out of others' business and keeping busy with your own hands, you won't place any unnecessary burden on others in the church. And then the church's charity would be reserved for those who truly do need that material help. And there are. And there are. As we close, just some final questions I'll ask. Number one, is brotherly love an inevitable part of your life? Paul taught us that brotherly love is an indispensable, or inevitable, I should say, an inevitable consequence of the Christian life. Is brotherly love an inevitable part of your life? Number two, Paul taught us that brotherly love requires incessant improvement in the Christian life. 
through loving increasingly, living quietly, focusing inwardly, and working diligently? Are you committed to improving that brotherly love in your life through these manners? And then finally, are you motivated by the advantages to be gained through this improvement, through a more pure witness to the world, as well as through your own personal well-being? Let's ask the Lord that He would press this deep and and that we would walk away. And if there's one word that I want you to remember, it is that special word, Philadelphia. And as you think and meditate upon that term and remember all the words that surround that term here in this paragraph, may the Lord teach you what needs to improve in your life, what needs to be affirmed in your life, what needs to change, so that we would be those who honor the Lord in our love for one another. Let's pray to Him. Father, we thank You for the text of Scripture, which is so clear. It shines a light on us. It's so practical. We pray now that You would not allow us simply to be hearers of this Word, but as we go from here, may Your Spirit, our great Teacher, be taking these words, pressing them deep, revealing weaknesses, strengthening that which exists, and improving our love for one another. May you be so glorified in this group and in our church by that very love. And may the world know us as a place of true and to them undescribable, unfathomable kind of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.